patient recently asked me to give him a date of when I thought things would calm down and return to normal. He had already been told optimistic times, such as two weeks, which was clearly to put him at ease, but also dates much farther out, such as one year. What I told him was that I wished I could say, but simply put, no one knows yet. There was still a lot of uncertainty. What he and I could both do for ourselves was to stand our fears and anxiety, learn more, and adapt as things come up. Courage is not the absence of fear, but the ability to continue to function and face one's fears. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett, and this is In Contact with the ACO. I wanted to interrupt our normal programming to bring you this important interview with Dr. Peter Christ, President of the American College of Ergonomy. I hope it helps, and if so, please share it with others. The coronavirus pandemic has us living with tremendous uncertainty. Uh, how contagious is it really? If I get it, will I survive? Often it seems we get bits and pieces of information and our assumptions and fears fill in the blanks. As if the medical concerns aren't enough, there are concerns about one's job and the economy, and it's enough to make anyone panic. So Dr. Chris, I wanted to talk with you to hear your observations and your thinking on this important situation. W what can you tell us? Well, the first thing is is to be underscore, and I think it runs through everything that we will talk about, is that things are very uncertain right now. And it's very important, I think, to remember that anxiety is an absolutely natural emotional reaction to uncertainty. And what really matters is how people handle that anxiety. And so looking around, I see people that I call the ostriches who disengage and dismiss the significance and stick their heads in the sand, and then other people who are all stirred up and get into a panic. And so a more healthy response would be to be able to stand your anxiety and just keep observing and looking and seeing uh, what is actually going on in reality to make uh, rational decisions about what what to do. And that's hard for people to do in the face of uncertainty. Um, it's hard for people to just stay without either jumping to a conclusion as the panickers do or disengage as the ostriches do. And, and so if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying this is not just a medical problem of uh, combating the virus and figuring out what to do to treat people's medical illness. Right. I mean, that's, I think that's a very important thing to remember. Any epidemic, any pandemic is not just uh, understanding the biology of the pathogen or even the medical treatment of it. It's a social uh, phenomenon. So epidemiology really crosses over in, into sociology and understanding how people um, handle things um, you know, it, as social beings is, is a crucial uh, part of it. And so at the college, we, we um, teach what we call a, a functional approach to thinking, which uh, instead of the traditional scientific um, method, which is um, observation, hypothesis, experimentation, and conclusion, we really keep focusing on the observational side, perceive, perceive, perceive until a conclusion spontaneously comes to you rather than coming up with a conclusion from in, in your mind or driven by some emotional reaction. We distinguish observations uh, and perceptions from conclusions 
because we want to know what is the reality of what what's going on rather than that conclusion based on some misperception we have or some idea we have driven by emotion that may may be irrational i i see so for instance from my own experience i remember you know i went on vacation on march 10th and on march 9th i remember hearing more and more about it and you know i think i read something along the lines of well um someone kind of dismissing what's going on not saying it's not important but you know the flu kills more people every year and that helped me say you know what i don't have to worry about this because there's things that are worse than this and um that allowed me to kind of disengage rather than than stand it and look more and more which i've been doing more recently right um, yeah i mean i um, I've thought a lot about that comparison that people make between the coronavirus and, and the flu. And on the surface of it, it seems to make sense. But if you look at it, if you just look at the numbers, uh, more flu cases, more deaths uh, compared to coronavirus, it's missing the essential point that uh, if you're thinking mechanically, you tend to think uh, um, in terms of... of um, uh, quantities. So let me go back for a second and, and just kind of define what we talk about, about what uh, functional thinking is, because that will come up over and sure, over. Sure. Um, Dr. Baker, who founded the college, had a one-sentence summary uh, of functional thinking. Functional thinking is thinking as nature functions. Well, when I told a friend of mine, he said, well, that's a circular definition. So how does nature function? And one of the things that we understand as, as organomists is that nature functions by virtue of spontaneous movement. Nature itself is spontaneous. So um, that's what we're, we're looking for when, with functional thinking is allowing ourselves to observe and observe until a, a thought spontaneously comes to us that is in direct alignment with or mirrors the actual reality, the actual thing that we're, we're observing. And so if, if you, the alternatives to that are the, the two more armored ways of thinking or mechanistically, which means thinking as if nature is a machine, one cog uh, moves the other, or mystically as if nature is an unknowable oneness that just happens magically. We integrate both of those on the deeper level of saying, Okay, we can look at the details, but we also absolutely need to look uh, at the big picture. And if you don't uh, look at that whole big picture and, and integrate um, what the whole picture is with the, the details, you get lost either thinking mechanically or mystically. So um, if you just look at the numbers, it, um, I, I, as you probably know, I love word origins. The word quantitative comes from the Latin word quantus, which means how great. The word qualitative comes from the word qualis in Latin, which means of what kind. Well, if you don't identify what kind you're dealing with, it doesn't, you can't determine how large it is, how great it is. So until we know qualitatively how the coronavirus differs from the flu virus, comparing numbers is going to tend, as you said, to dismiss the significance of it. And there's enough information now to say that the coronavirus is qualitatively different from the 
the flu virus. The other thing is the flu virus happens every season and there's much less uncertainty. So there's less anxiety. Even if more people die uh, from the flu virus, people know that, okay, that's how many people are going to die. And in a certain ironic way, it, that uncertainty, even if the, the, that certainty, even if the certainty is, is bad, uh, it reduces anxiety. Um, so the, the whole picture of how we look at this is just so, so crucial and not to jump to a conclusion based on this number compared to that number until we know how this virus behaves. And I still think there's a lot that we just don't know yet. I mean, we're gathering factual information, but that's the key. We need factual information on which to base rational decisions. Yeah, and, and I hope that people have those because what I read when I'm paying attention to it is just very sparse tidbits of, um, especially now, I think, because a lot of young people dismissed it as just something that's going to harm older people. Um, now they come out in the news with something, oh, it's not just old people, it's also young people. There's even, in fact, there's a 25-year-old who died, and you know nothing about that information, you know, but it's almost like, um, swinging backwards because people were dismissive and now they want to say, no, 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 it, it is something you need to um, be anxious about and worried about. Yeah, well, that, but that's why I, I use the term that we're dealing with um, a, a panic about the coronavirus pandemic, but we're also dealing with a pandemic of panic. Uh, that you know, the anxiety is contagious. So to distinguish the difference between anxiety and panic, what happens is if someone is anxious and, and that anxiety builds and they lose perspective, then they start to, to go off and the anxiety just takes over. And that we call it a blind panic for a good reason, to, uh -huh. that when you're in a panic, you just don't see. And that's why I said the ostriches um, with their heads in the sand, don't look, the panickers can't see. And the bottom line with that is then we're not able to integrate and look at a rational approach. Do you have thoughts about what's been done so far, whether in different states or in the nation, um, about how, um, how things are working or how they're not working with interventions that have been done? Um, I, I really am someone that says, we'll have to see. I mean, I, I have lots of thoughts, whether they um, are uh, functional, whether they match what's going on. Um, I, I'm very clear about certain little incidents, that uh, instances where um, what we were calling a mechanistic approach, not seeing the big picture is, is a serious problem. And what um, the ergonomic approach of trying to integrate these various different realms of the biology of something, the medicine of it, and the sociology. Um, a great little example of where the, the failure uh, to do that and the tendency to think mechanistically showed up was when they decided they should screen everybody coming back from Europe to see who was infected and who wasn't so they could separate out the infected people. And uh, on the surface, it made perfect sense. Yeah, we need to know that. And but without looking at the sociology of how do people move in an airport? What is the flow of a crowd in an airport? What happened is that those um, uh, um, 
uh, test points became bottlenecks for the flow and crowds ended up being uh, jammed together, defeating the very purpose of doing the, the testing in the first place of trying to separate people out. So if someone had really looked at that from the bigger picture of, well, what's the sociology of traffic flow in an airport, they, they probably could have uh, overcome uh, that um, problem that happened. Another oh, that makes sense. Yeah, thank you. Um, another example uh, where there actually was more functional thinking, the state of New Jersey sent out uh, reports to doctors um, and, um, I mean, volumes and volumes of information. But one little uh, piece that struck me was that um, they were talking about school closing and whether that made sense or not. And they were actually thinking more functionally. They were saying uh, a long, uh, a two-week closure might actually cause more trouble than uh, uh, not closing the schools because something more than half of uh, grade school kids are taken care of by their grandparents at some point in the week. Uh -huh. So sending kids home that might be infected to spend time with the um, elderly people who are more at risk uh, might uh, create more of a problem than if the kids were in school uh, in a supervised setting. Now, the, the reality is that all the schools shut down and sent all the kids home. And the, the this report before that happened was saying, you need to really think about, because kids are going to gather anyway, uh, would it be better to do that? So that was uh, an example of at least attempting to think functionally. Unfortunately, the... the um, uh, political entities made decisions and policies that uh, I, I'm afraid are not always so functional. Uh, just reacting out of we got to do something. You know. It reminds me of you know you may have been taught this the same as I was in medical school about taking your own pulse and and kind of pausing it, whether there's an emergency or a code um, just to kind of um, pause for a moment before you make yeah. any decisions or do anything. No, that that's good. I was never taught exactly that, but but that principle. But yeah, take your own pulse before you you get into an emergency situation. Yeah, yeah. Again, uh, the basic principle that, that we try to focus on is uh, perceive, perceive, perceive. Make observations before you come to a conclusion. Yeah. And do you have any advice for any listeners? Just practical things people can do with all this anxiety kind of in the air. Um, yeah, I do. But before I get to that, I want to touch on one one other because uh, sure. I think that's crucial. The the other thing that that uh, is implied in all of this, when I said a a, pen, a pandemic of panic, is that the tendency for uh, somebody to be anxious and someone who's with them to get anxious as well is very much the image I have is is like a flock of birds that one of them gets startled and they all take off is I think it's a natural biological reaction for a social group to react together. Um, and so in the face of anxiety, the, there tends to be more and more anxiety in the group. The difference is the birds keep their eyes open and don't fly into a tree or bump into each other. Human beings have this tendency to get into mass hysteria where they're not looking and and really seeing the, the consequences. Mm -hmm. um, so going back to um, what you were saying about some of the policies, one of the major concerns I have is that there are people who handle their anxiety 
rather than tolerating it themselves and dealing with it, tend to try to control everything in, in their environment when they're faced with anxiety. And those people will, will want to control uh, everything around them. And I'm, I'm quite concerned that many of the policies are being motivated by we've got to do something to control this, um, when in fact it's an attempt to control their own anxiety. Mm. And in ergonomy, we have the concept of the emotional plague, um, which describes that tendency for someone, instead of suffering with their feelings, to actually try to control the environment in a way that ends up destructive. And I've used the term, uh, if you really look uh, carefully, rather than, uh, I mean, it's a, another basic concept we teach at the, the college of what matters is not what somebody says or their intentions, what matters is the effect. So if you really look at the effect of, of the policies, it will bring you back to reality, what is actually go going on. And many of the policies are really quite destructive of what I say, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, basic principles that, that uh, are natural. Uh, it's even in the... Uh, the Declaration of Independence, uh, inalienable rights granted by our Creator. Um, so however you want to look at that, those are basic life principles. Uh, and every time they get undermined, we need to think carefully, is this someone doing something to control their environment out of their own intolerance of feelings, or is this truly necessary? And this is a situation where there's so much uncertainty, it's hard to know, and I really believe better safe than sorry, but we need to uh, also really look carefully at the effects. So that brings us right back to your, your, your question, what can people do? And part of what's different in our understanding as ergonomists about anxiety is we don't see anxiety as a pathological symptom that needs to either be medicated or, as I say, medicated or meditated away. We see anxiety as simply the feeling someone has when an impulse doesn't have a satisfying outlet. So that impulse could be an emotion, it could be a desire to do something. And so um, if that impulse is blocked, it will tend to feed the, the, the anxiety. So the, in individual therapy, we work with people on helping them to overcome what's, whatever is in the way of them finding a satisfying outlet so that the anxiety can actually turn into something satisfying and pleasurable. In this situation, I think a lot of the anxiety comes, as I said at the beginning, from the uncertainty and this desire to do something, but it's not clear what to do. So there's an impulse to try to take care of things, but it's not clear where to go and there isn't any clear satisfying uh, outlet for that. And the um, person who developed um, ergonomy, Wilhelm Reich, had a wonderful um, uh, two sentences that he, uh, I think, summed up things. He said, love, work, and knowledge are the wellsprings of our life. They should also govern it. So each of those uh, um, things, love, work, and knowledge, are ways that we ha can express our energy. So if you don't have an outlet for your energy, um, it's going to fuel the anxiety. So the practical suggestions are... Um, 
one, do anything you can to reduce uncertainty. And when your routine is totally dis disrupted, that's very difficult. So it means people need to find ways to identify routine routines that they can uh, do and continue to do. They need outlets for their energy and some form of exercise just to discharge your energy is crucial. I take um, a regular long morning walk with my dogs and I've actually been pleased to see in the last uh, few weeks, I've seen more people out on walks than I ever see. Uh, I have too, yeah. It's been nice to see that. And that that's encouraging to me that people aren't just uh, holing up and, and uh, shutting down. But if you go back to love, work, and knowledge, everybody needs an outlet for their love impulses, and everybody needs an outlet for their work impulses. And in this situation, that's one of the terrible things about the policies that have been implemented, is it, it disrupts the natural uh, work uh, impulses that people have. And I think people think um, people need to work in order to earn money no I, I was just going to say that because it's all focused on money and then giving money back to people who aren't in work but it's more than just that exactly work is a natural biological need if you look at a squirrel it is active if you put a squirrel in a cage it's going to go nuts unless you put a a, a a wheel in there for it to run on um i mean it, it, it just struck me that that it's just a simple biological need and then the knowledge part, I think we all have that impulse to reach out and, and uh, learn things and gain knowledge. So anything anybody can do uh, in this situation to find uh, productive, rational outlets for their love impulses, their work impulses, and their uh, knowledge impulses is, is crucial to do. And, and I'll... I'll Finish that with a, a, one of the things that hit me recently is it's a misnomer to talk about social distancing. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It it, it just um, was bothering me until it dawned on me. It's physical distance we need, not social distance. There's no evidence that this virus is spread by how close you are socially to somebody. <laughs> spread by how physically close you are. So this is a perfect opportunity for people to, to uh, use whatever means. Um, and I've, I've seen it. Uh, more people have reached out to me um, with emails and, and phone calls than, than usual. And I know that's true of a lot of people. Uh, so, you know, again, th those are positive things that I see that people um, seeing the need for their social contact with each other. Yes, yeah. I've heard you describe society and groups of people as biological systems. Can you tell us more about that and, and how does that help us approach things? Um, it's one of the principles that, that we talk about in, in social ergonomy is understanding that, that social systems also are, they're really biosocial systems. And I talk in terms of two different kinds of uh, biosocial systems, families that, that develop to support the work, the, I'm sorry, families that develop to support the, the love function and work organizations that develop to support the, the work function. But a whole nation is also a, a, a biological uh, social system. And one of the basic principles in ergonomy is um, 
things, biological processes naturally have a pulsation, an expansion and a contraction. So the natural state for any social system is to expand unless there's some some threat. So and this, this is different than when I think most people probably hear those terms and uh, when they talk about the economy and the stock market with contractions and expansions, th th we're not talking about that. Well, it's, no, we are. Uh, I mean, it, that's, that's, I would say, a more um, mechanical way of looking at some aspects. But that absolutely, I believe, is a reflection of, of exactly this, the same processes. So it's funny. We, I talked with uh, my financial advisor, and he's, he said, well, we, the market was due for a correction. Well, that's their, their <laughs> nice little term that, that when there's been an expansion, there's We've been expecting this. <laughs> well, but, but it's, it, that's their way of understanding a contraction. So naturally, there's going to be an expansion. And then they're naturally, um, if you look at the history of the market, it expands and it contracts. And a crash is where it's, uh, and I believe, um, it's, I think it is what we're talking about. It's an energetic thing that the market over contracts because it was over expanded. Um, and I think many people would say, um, our society has been in a state of over excitation, over expansion of people not really tolerating their own anxieties and the own, their own contractive emotions. And that's one of the things that we understand in ergonomy is, is that um, in, in an individual, there are expansive emotions like love and joy and contractive emotions like fear and sadness. Anger is kind of in between where it's both expanding into the muscles as well as contracting uh, from the surface. So both are activated there. But that same uh, uh, process of um, can someone tolerate their contractive emotions? Because that's a natural part of life too, is to feel good and then also um, uh, feel fear and, and sadness and to be able to tolerate all of those. But the tendency, I think, in our society for quite a while has been to push against the contraction and not feel uh, anxiety. I mean, I think it's part of what the drug culture has been about uh, is to not just feel those feelings. And so here we have a society that's been in a state of overexpansion, and then this threat of the coronavirus comes along, and it doesn't just have a natural contraction of contracting down where it needs to be, it, it just collapses and, and uh, shuts down. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the concern, is, is how long it will take for that to to re-expand, and a lot will depend on policies that uh, uh, government agencies make. Uh, yeah, my sense is there's been examples of both. I think you can see like communities rallying together, and then you can also see these extreme examples of people just going off the deep end, like the examples of the spring breakers or the people who are gouging prices or just being cruel to each other because of their own fears, I think, like you said. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen examples of both, but I don't think it's clear on just how the entire nation is responding quite. Yeah, I think I think that's that's true. But it but 
what you brought up, I'm glad you brought it up, is is this kind of situation brings out the best in people and the worst in people. It, I have seen absolutely, um, as I said, many examples of people pulling together and and uh, connecting with each other, even if it's not physically by phone, by uh, uh, video conferencing, and so forth. Um, but uh, I, what was it? Several. I've gotten several emails from different companies warning about coronavirus scams. So it, it brings out the criminal element. Anybody, when people are, are frightened and vulnerable, it will bring out uh, the people who will take advantage of that. And going back to what I had said about the emotional plague, it tends to uh, become more active whenever people are... Um, uh, frightened and and vulnerable, the the people who want to control uh, other uh, people out of their own intolerance are more likely to to act that out uh, when people are frightened and vulnerable. I see. Are there other thoughts or other things you wanted to share related to this? The essence of nature is spontaneous movement, and I wanted to just re reinforce that that. That if you really look at natural phenomenon, I mean, the weather is a good example. They try to predict it, but you can never predict it 100%, which <laughs> says it, it something is happening spontaneously. Like when you look at your phone to check the weather and it says there's a 0% chance of rain and you're in the rain? Yes, things like that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so if you really think about um, phenomenon going on as being part of nature and that that's a spontaneous process, um, in this situation, uh, um, a contagion, an epidemic, a pandemic, I think are natural phenomenon and they will have a, a natural course. And so there, the mechanistic tendency I think has been to say, well, let's stop this virus. I think that's impossible. Uh, if you really understand this is a natural phenomenon, we're not going to stop it. Now, the question is, can we control it in a way that allows us to manage it better? And the, the rational people are talking about it in that way. But there are other people that are talking about total lockdown to, to prevent this virus. And, and I think um, uh, from spreading, and I think that is just an impossibility. So, and because that's a mechanical way of thinking about it, um, it the virus is going to continue to spread in whatever way it, it, it does, despite uh, a mechanical uh, approach. So the, uh, I think what we need to have people doing is, is doing research that will allow us to truly understand the natural um, course of this um, natural phenomenon and getting data that will allow us to look at how does this natural naturally function so that we can then have interventions that instead of trying to fight it will um, manage it rather than trying to uh, totally control it and i think there's decent data that that coming out of some places i think korea had much more data about uh, testing the general population to see uh, who has the infection? And in this country, you cannot get tested unless you have symptoms. I, I know that's frustrating to me to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and that uh, undermines one of the key pieces of information we need to have, which is 
how many people are infected, how many of those um, uh, actually develop symptoms, and how many of those actually develop a serious disease, and how many of those need to be hospitalized, and how many of those will likely die. And it goes back to what I was saying, until you really understand um, the behavior of this particular virus and, and how it spreads, you can't compare it to the flu, you can't compare it to others. We need to know how this one works. I like that. That, that I think that, that adds a lot of clarity to the situation. I, I was thinking when you were talking about things moving uh, spontaneously, just about the economy also, um, the, what's in the news um, a lot recently has been the shortage of supplies that could be masks or ventilators. Yeah. And there's opposing sides about, um, you know, forcing the federal government or someone to, to make it happen, to, to do it. And then there's the, the opposing side, which is to allow companies to kind of figure out a way to, to handle the problem. And th there's something that stands out to me about that, which is there are good people in business who want to help out. I mean, like you said, there, it brings out the good in some people. And um, so... I forgot what it's called, but the act, you know, where the federal government can take over a, a business, uh, that sounds very much of, of forcing something rather than allowing something to spontaneously happen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. A great example of that, actually, just today, my wife told me she got an email from Hanes, the underwear company, which <laughs> I guess she orders Hanes for her underwear, and they were saying they were switching over to making um, uh, uh, face masks. And I, I thought, that's a small step from dividing a bra in half and putting straps on each side to turn it into a face mask. I mean, it's funny, that neighborhood thing, somebody was suggesting you could do that. And I thought, well, Haynes is actually going to do that, you know, as a production model. So uh, that's an example of um, somebody spontaneously de developing what is needed and, you know, we call it a free market for a reason, to allow things to happen uh, freely. I mean, if you really look back at the policies, there, there's complaining about a shortage of hospital beds. Uh, a lot of that is due to the fact that states regulated how many beds a hos hospital could build uh, for decades. I know, and I just was reading the other day, and I heard this before, uh, but that the hospitals get to decide if another hospital gets built. <laughs> yeah. Basically, the, the existing competition gets to say whether they get more competition. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, if we understand that the essence of things is spontaneous movement, any attempt to control that, I mean, yes, because there is the destructive element that can come on people, that needs to be um, legislated and prevent people from uh, taking advantage of, of other people. But for the most so that's part, we national uh, function of government to contain people's emotional plague impulses. Yes, rational, exactly. A rational function of government is to contain what we call the this the secondary layer. The um, you know that there's the healthy core, then there's the neurotic secondary layer, and then the facade. So uh, the emotional plague tendencies come out of that uh, secondary layer. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about the importance of paying attention to the effects. Uh, the 19th century French economics, uh, economist Frederick Bastiat wrote a monograph in 1850 
that talked about the seen and the unseen. And I think the problem with an awful lot of things that happen in the world, people uh, see the immediate effect, but they don't see the unseen consequences. And I think that's what we need to be aware of in this whole uh, pandemic uh, uh, of the coronavirus is what are going to be the unseen uh, consequences of some of the policies. A bit ago, I mentioned that the ACO uh, teaches a multidisciplinary approach that includes biology, medicine, and sociology. But the reality is that term doesn't even begin to do justice for what we're actually looking at. What we're really looking for are the ways in which uh, things function the same way in, in those different realms. And I think a good example uh, is I mentioned uh, the function of pulsation with alternating expansion and contraction. And we see that um, all the way from a single cell protozoan organism to the beating of the heart to um, the way um, people experience emotions, expansive emotions and joy and love and contractive emotions and anxiety and fear. and. It's also uh, in the expansion and contraction of the economy, as uh, we've talked about. And one of the uh, specific equivalences comes to mind uh, that we mentioned that our uh, society has been in a state of expansion or even overexpansion for some period of time, avoiding the feelings of anxiety and fear. And uh, with the threat of the coronavirus, it didn't just contract down to a, a natural uh, contraction. It, it seemed to over-contract because uh, the expansiveness was not on as solid a footing as it could have been. And it reminds me of uh, what we see with someone with a manic-depressive character, where their manic phase, um, they may have a very big ego, but it's a weak ego. Uh, so that if somebody hurts their feelings, they don't just contract down uh, to a normal uh, emotional reaction, but they may uh, collapse into a severe depression where they're terribly hard on themselves. So that's an example of, of what we see uh, emotionally and psychologically being very similar to what uh, you see in, in the economy. And any of us who've worked with people with that uh, character know we have to really work hard to advise them to find that middle road of standing their anxiety so they don't either tip into an overexpansive manic state or a contraction uh, in depression. And it's very much the same advice that we need to uh, be giving people uh, about uh, dealing with this situation, not uh, withdrawing as an ostrich or uh, going into uh, a panic as a what I call panickers or like chicken little. And the uh, um, one other thing about expansion and contraction that I think it is important to uh, keep in mind is that contraction always happens faster than expansion in every situation, uh, in every biological uh, system that we've seen from a single cell um, protozoa that if you uh, if something irritates it, it will co contract down and it takes time to expand. If you've ever, ever seen a sea anemone in a tide pool, if you touch it, it contracts instantly, but it may take minutes for it to re-expand. And I think 
um, our economy is likely to be very much the same way uh, that the um, contractions that happen economically happen much more quickly than an expansion. So it's important to keep in mind any stimulus package is not going to affect things uh, be, uh, instantly like uh, a machine, like the economy is a machine, it's a functioning living process. So it will take time for it to expand much longer than it took uh, the few hours or days it took to contract down. Well, I really appreciate your time, and I think that that can give a lot of clarity to our listeners. And um, you know, I look forward to hearing more from you as, as things develop. Well, thank you. It's it's my pleasure, and uh, I hope I can add something to the picture. And I look forward to seeing what we can do with that information and knowledge. If you have questions or comments, please let us know by using the link in the show notes. If you like our work, be sure to subscribe and share with a friend. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to In Contact with the ACO.